Good day, wonderful podcast family. I hope that wherever you are on this planet, you're doing tremendous. We've got a phenomenal episode of the show for you today. We've got Ari Witten on, and we are discussing the energy blueprint, how to overcome fatigue and have energy all day. We talk about your bolt score, lifestyle analysis, circadian rhythms, exploring caffeine, the hermetic stress, uh, chronotypes, blue blocker sunglasses, calorie stacking, the optimal eating window, reversing diabetes, uh, optimizing body competition, what controls energy levels, why energy is fundamental to life, and so much more. I know you're going to enjoy the show, so please uh, do what you can to share it far and wide. If you want to become a member at mattbelair.com and become a member, you can do so and get exclusive content. You can do so for free if you send me an email, or you can donate like on Patreon if you go to mattbelair.com and click the membership and uh, support the show that way. If anybody is interested in coaching, one-on-one coaching, the Soul Compass program, or or anything else that I put out there, including the Quantum Heart Hypnosis or the Zen Athlete Peak Performance Programs, just send me an email, matt at zenathlete.com. Happy to answer any questions for you. Um, but the best way to support the show is to do three kind acts wherever you are in the world today. So let's come into a state of peace and coherence before we dive in. Wherever you are in the world, just stop what you're doing. Take in a deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath. And let it out slowly, filling every cell, muscle, and fiber of your being with joy, peace, contentment, strength, faith, courage, hope, and get ready to enjoy this phenomenal episode with Ari Witten. Hello and welcome to the Mastermind, Body, and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. As you know, we are currently overcoming extreme censorship. So if you want to support this show, please go over to mattbelair.com. Uh, consider becoming a member. You can do so, so by donation or for free. But the best way to support this show is to consider doing three kind acts wherever you are in the world today. Today's guest is the founder of the Energy Blueprint. He is an energy and fatigue specialist who focuses on taking an evidence-based approach to energy enhancement, nutrition, and exercise. He has been studying nutrition, holistic health for more than two decades and has a bachelor's in, uh, of science in, in kinesiology. For the past six years, he has been working with many of the top scientists and physicians on the planet to develop the most comprehensive program in the world on the science of overcoming fatigue and increasing energy. Welcome to the show, Ari Witten. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad you're you're coming on the show, man. I had to shorten your bio and bumbled through that, but um, you, it's big. You know, you've done a lot. You have, uh, you know, you've been in this game a lot, and uh, you have your own experience and expertise. But you've also been teaming up with a lot of experts in the field as well to try to get to the bottom of this. And you just released a book, so we're going to get into that today. But I'd love for you to share just a little bit about your background, like how did you get into this type of work? Um, because your personal story is also very um, interesting. Yeah, well, the very short version is I have been studying health science since I was a little kid, uh, since I was 12, 13 years old. And at that time, my interest was really more bodybuilding. My world was fitness and, and body composition. Um, my older brother was a bodybuilder and personal trainer, and he was uh, be, you know, being mentored by uh, professional and aspiring professional bodybuilders. And so I'm, you know, like any good younger brother wanting to be like big brother. And so I'm in that world of bodybuilding and fitness and exercise physiology and biomechanics and nutrition from a very young age. And uh, I would say I was pretty gifted for it. I, I was, you know, reading like college level nutrition and, and exercise physiology textbooks by the time I was 14, 15 years old. 
Um, and yeah, I was really obsessed and very deeply passionate about that from a very young age. And when I was in my mid-20s, something shifted for me, though. Uh, when I was in my mid-20s, I got Epstein-Barr virus I, and I got mononucleosis pretty severely. Um, I ended up losing about 30 to 40 pounds of mostly, almost entirely muscle uh, in the span of about a month uh, as a result of not being able to eat because the back of my throat was so swollen. I, I mean, my tonsils were just entirely these giant like white golf balls just filled with pus. Couldn't eat anything except broth. And, uh, and then I ended up basically getting long-term lasting chronic fatigue as a result of that, that, that was debilitating for close to about a year. And in that process, uh, I realized that this thing that I had taken for granted my whole life as an athlete, as somebody who's into fitness um, and, and nutrition and somebody who was always health conscious, I took for granted this thing we call energy. And I didn't realize how important it was. And I didn't realize until that moment how much your life really goes down the crapper when you don't have energy. I mean, I had, at that time, I had a girlfriend. I was uh, living on a communal farm in, in Israel with 150 other kids from all over the world and kind of living, you know, like a party lifestyle. And uh, I had to work a job and I was in school and all of it fell apart when I didn't have the energy, physical and mental energy to do any of it. Um, I was just debilitated in bed and it was brutally painful. And uh, I sought out conventional doctors, I sought out alternative doctors, people in natural health, functional medicine doctors. And what was shocking to me was I, I realized slowly, and this is kind of the summary of multiple years of digging into this topic, but I realized that really none of these people were knew what they were doing when it came to understanding human energy levels. Why are people chronically fatigued? How do we get our energy back? And that was really the big catalyst for me to be the one who sort of builds out our scientific framework, a real science-based understanding of what is controlling and regulating human energy levels. How do we go from chronically fatigued to having high energy levels? How do we go from just being a typical person, maybe not with chronic fatigue, to superhuman level, levels of energy? And that's really what I've devoted the last 10 years of my life to. So kind of the first, the first 10, 15 years were really very focused on the world of fitness, nutrition, body composition. And the last decade has been a total dedication to building out the science of human energy optimization. Well, amazing. And uh, it sucks that you had to go through that experience. You know, I, I know a lot of people who have been on the show and also per personally who go through a very challenging health experience, but if they're able to process that, they end up using it to, you know, teach others something very important because often our traditional medical system comes up short. And I've heard that on the show uh, quite a bit. So I'd love for you to kind of dive into that a little bit. And there's a lot that we could talk about. I think that many people you know, they have a baseline for health, right? And so if you don't know what, you know, high energy feels like, or if you're in chronic pain, you sometimes you forget, you know, what it feels like just to be comfortable. And so, you know, I feel like a lot of people are probably 
there's probably more people chronically fatigued um, with adrenal burnout and things like that. And I think myself included, I always wonder, you know, with my workouts or my training, am I overtraining, right? I'd have a more tendency to do that, to basically go way too hard and not relax. Um, but you have to recover. You have to have that uh, nutrition side. You have to have the recovery side. Um, and then for the everyday person, there's a lot of stress and that can really um, cause a lot of issues. So I'd, I'm wondering, where do we start with this? How do we, what are some things that we do to mitigate it? And then what do we do to begin to build these uh, energy systems? And maybe you can also share uh, like a litmus test. Like, how do we know where we are? You know what I mean? Do you know if you're right at the bottom? You know, some people are really tired all the time. They're going to know, but other people might not. Mm -hmm. Okay. There, there's a, there's a lot in there. Um, as far as how do we know, it's energy is a subjective thing, right? There's no blood test that you can do that says, ah, you have, you know, uh, 70 out of 100 in, in terms of your energy score, you know, or here's the, the bar biomarker for fatigue or something like that, that it doesn't exist. Um, so we can't rely on objective tests to determine that. The, the best test, if somebody's interested, um, in doing some kind of test that reliably and predictably correlates with one's energy levels. The best one I found is a, a, what's called the Bolt score, the body oxygen level test. And it's very simple, it can be done in less than a minute. And basically it's a breath hold test of sorts, but it's done in a very specific way. So you, do, you don't do real deep breathing and then a full inhale and hold, you do normal breathing and you hold your breath after a, a normal exhale and you wait until the first urge to breathe. Now, if we did that test right now, and someone can feel free to do that right now, just pull up an online timer on their computer and, and do that test. Um, again, normal, normal breath, hold after the exhale, pinch your nose, wait until the first clear urge to breathe, and that's your score. Now, most people will have especially if you're um, in poor health, you're not very physically fit and you have chronic fatigue, you're probably gonna be under 20 and in many cases under 15 seconds. And that very reliably correlates with your energy levels. Um, where you wanna be is at least 30 seconds. So that's, that's one thing just as maybe a quick aside, we can explore more on that topic of, of breathing and, and oxygenation of the body. Uh, if you want to go into that. Um, to answer the question more broadly, I would say it's it's really, you, you don't need a test necessarily to tell you you've got energy problems. This is your subjective state. Do you have as much energy as you'd like? Are you bouncing off the walls with the same kind of energy that you had when you were a kid? Or do you have a lot less energy than you had when you were a kid? And are you sometimes noticing that you're tired or you have energy crash after maybe a couple hours after eating a meal or maybe in the afternoons or you feel totally wiped out by 6 p.m. Um, or you just feel chronically a, a low level, you know, sort of lack of energy all the time and you're relying on caffeine to try to get yourself going. Um, that subjective sense of your energy is really all you need to know. Do you want more energy or are you content with the energy you have? And if you want more 
And I think everybody really should want more because energy is fundamentally the basis of a good life. This is what gives us the energy to put into ourselves, to improving ourselves, to working on our dreams and goals, to working on becoming a better mother or father or a better husband or wife or better in your business or a better student or better uh, as a parent. Every area of our lives depends upon our ability to bring energy and intention towards improving that and, and becoming the best that we can be at that particular role. Um, and without energy, everything, like I said before, everything really goes in a very, very bad direction very quickly. So energy is really the basis of a good life. I think we all should want more of it. We should all seek to optimize our energy levels. And if you want to understand fundamentally what is controlling that, well, it, it really comes down to two basic things, okay? One of those things is what's going on at the environment and lifestyle level. What are the different sources of stressors in our life um, when it comes to our nutrition habits, when it comes to our um, light exposure habits, when it comes to circadian rhythm and our sleep habits, um, when it comes to our exposures to environmental toxicants, when it comes to every aspect of our lifestyle and environment, we have stressors at that level. The other thing that's, that, that that's interacting with is you, you at the cellular level, and in particular, your mitochondria, which are your cellular energy generators. Now, we know based on discoveries in really the last decade that mitochondria, which have long been taught in biology courses, you probably remember from your high school or college biology course, uh, being taught that mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. And they're really framed as these sort of mindless energy generators that just take in carbs and fats and then they pump out energy in the form of something called ATP. Well, in the last 10 years, we've discovered something really important uh, about mitochondria, and that is that they have a second role beyond just energy production. And that role is in cellular defense. So it turns out that mitochondria are basically like the canaries in the coal mine of our body. They are these exquisitely sensitive environmental sensors that are constantly taking samples of the environment and asking the question, are we under attack? Okay, and, and here's the key part. These two roles of mitochondria, energy production and cellular defense, are mutually exclusive. So in other words, to the degree that your mitochondria are sensing that they are under attack, that there is some danger or threat present in the body, they are turning down the dial on energy production and, and shifting resources towards cellular defense. And fundamentally, your energy levels, the subjective sense of energy that you have, is a reflection of the degree to which your mitochondria at the cellular level are turning down energy production and shifting towards cellular defense, or they're in peacetime metabolism or energy mode and they're pumping out lots of energy. Now, to just connect the dots, so going back to these, this model of two fundamental controllers of human energy levels, what's going on at the environment and lifestyle level, everything from um, nutrition, 
to circadian rhythm, to sleep, to psychological stress, to environmental toxicants, everything going on at the, in the environment and lifestyle level, that's one thing. So what, what is the level of threats that your body is subjected to? But then this is interacting with what you have going on at the cellular level. Now, here's the key. It is possible to have either cells that are filled with really weak, damaged, shriveled, dysfunctional mitochondria and and few of them, or it's possible to have uh, cells filled with lots of mitochondria that are big, strong, healthy, robust, and lots of them, okay? And just to give you some, some numbers on that, we know that the typical 70-year-old person has 75% less mitochondrial capacity than a 20-year-old person. So most people between the ages of 20 to 70 lose 75% of their mitochondrial capacity. Now, here's the crazy part. We know from looking at 70-year-olds that are lifelong athletes and exercisers, they actually have the same mitochondrial capacity as a young adult. So what this means is that this loss of mitochondria is actually not just uh, a normal process of, of aging, but is actually the result of modern lifestyles causing us to lose our mitochondria. And, and we can talk about the reasons why that happens. But basically, the combination of those two things, what is the level of stress load that you have at the environment and lifestyle level? And what is your internal cellular state? Do you have big, strong mitochondria and lots of them, or do you have weak, shriveled, atrophied mitochondria and few of them? And the combination of those two things is ultimately what determines our energy levels. Well, well, that's great. And you covered a lot there. And I'm glad you shared um, the beginning about that test because, you know, I think that I asked that because some people will make an excuse where they'll say, oh, I'm just getting older or this is the way it is. And this is why my energy is, is the way it is. And sometimes people can know, and sometimes people think that, oh, I'm, I'm older. So now I have less, but I feel like we can always be optimizing the way we feel. And when we test certain things, we're going to have different experiences and, uh, and so when you go into the mitochondria stuff, yeah, I'd love for you to say like, what are those things that are, that we're doing that's causing us to have a lack of energy and what can we do to build them up so they are youthful? So we, we obviously touch on exercise being one. Um, I just saw, uh, I had uh, uh, Chris Duffin on and one of his, he, he's a guy who squatted a thousand pounds for reps and deadlifted a thousand pounds for reps. So he's incredibly strong. And uh, one of the people he's training is 72 and he deadlifted uh, over 500 pounds at 72. And you look wow. at him and, and the guy looks amazing. He looks in, in high quality health, but then you've got, um, you know, some people who exercise who go too far and end up getting injured. So with everything that we do, you've got exercise as one part, um, you know, safety, so you don't get injured, uh, but then the energy levels are paramount, right? And so if you are full and bursting with energy, that's the most ideal um, because that's going to, like you said, it's going to give you a higher quality of life for your relationships, for what you pay attention to, right? It's a lot easier to pay attention when you're full of energy than when you're lethargic and just trying to get to another coffee. Uh, adrenal fatigue is a big thing for people just chugging caffeine and having all these toxicants. So I'd love for you to share some of the things that are really causing us to create a lack of energy. And then how do we build up these mitochondria? Um, is it nutrition? Is it supplements? Or what are we doing? Yeah. 
um, there's a lot there. Okay, so um, let let's just start with with one thing that you mentioned: um, caffeine consumption. Okay, and this this will be one example, and then we can talk about a million other examples. Um, caffeine is a really interesting and insidious thing when it comes to energy levels, because um, we have research showing that if you take coffee or or caffeine and you're what's called a caffeine naive person meaning you don't normally consume caffeine then you take the caffeine um, in the hours subsequent to that we have research showing that you can get a very significant boost to your physical energy levels to your athletic performance to you know your stamina your time to exhaustion um, your ability to lift weights, your cognitive alertness, um, your reaction time, you know, all kinds of measures that, that we can say, wow, this caffeine is really giving us a boost. And we also know that on a subjective level, when someone consumes caffeine, they feel a boost, right? Um, and so people really go, well, well when, I'm, when I'm feeling a little low energy, I take my caffeine and, and then I feel good. Or I wake up and to get my brain started and to get my day going, I, I drink caffeine every day. And that really helps everything switch on. And people are operating with this assumption that that is what caffeine is doing. It's turning things on. Okay. And as I said, there's research to support that it does do that. Um, Here's the insidious part. When you take people who are chronic caffeine consumers and you measure them against people who don't consume any caffeine in their cognitive performance, physical performance, um, energy levels, reaction time, and so on, there's no difference. <laughs> so it turns out what's going on is something pretty insidious. Basically, within about two weeks or two to three weeks of daily consumption of caffeine, it does something to your brain that actually cancels out all of those boosts that you get in physical and mental performance and energy levels that you feel initially, all that research that I told you about a minute ago. So what's going on is basically this. Let me tell you a, bit, a little about how caffeine works and how our body responds to it. So we have a certain balance of neurotransmitters in our brain. Some are stimulatory and energizing. Others are inhibitory and kind of calming or relaxing that make us more tired, low energy. The brain is constantly trying to maintain a balance of those different neurotransmitters. One of those neurotransmitters is called adenosine. Okay, adenosine is an inhibitory neurotransmitter that lowers energy levels and makes us tired. The way that caffeine works is it acts on adenosine receptors. So adenosine normally goes into adenosine receptors in the brain. And then by, by doing that, when, those, when that adenosine fits into those adenosine receptors, it triggers a cascade of reactions that basically lowers our energy levels, makes us tired. Caffeine acts on those same receptors, but what it does is plugs them up so that the adenosine can't get into those receptors. And in the process of blocking the adenosine from getting into adenosine receptors, 
by, in other words, by blocking something that would normally be making you tired and lower energy, it creates a stimulatory energizing effect. Okay, so that's fundamentally how caffeine works. And in the short term, it works beautifully. But here's the problem. Because what I just said is that the brain is constantly trying to maintain a certain balance of stimulatory and inhibitory neurotransmitters, when you take caffeine on a daily basis, your brain basically goes, uh-oh, we're being overstimulated. We need to bring, bring, bring the brain back into balance. So how does it do that? Well, it creates adaptations to being overstimulated. And it does that by increasing the amount of adenosine receptors in the brain and increasing the amount of adenosine in the brain. So here's what happens. If you were to sort of chart this in terms of energy levels um, in relationship to um, caffeine consumption, what you would find is that initially in the first few days to few weeks of consuming caffeine, you're getting a genuine boost. But then what happens is your body's, your brain is making adaptations that are actually lowering your baseline levels of energy. So then how do we reconcile that with um, the fact that people still take caffeine and they feel a boost? Well, what's going on is actually that you've lowered your baseline levels of energy and, and, and physical performance and cognitive performance and mood, by the way. You've lowered all of that as a result of those negative adaptations that your brain made to chronic caffeine consumption. And now when you take the caffeine, you're actually, you're getting a boost. You still feel a subjective boost, but it's actually just boosting you back up to what used to be your level of normal. Okay. Your normal levels of energy and mood and cognitive and physical performance. And we know this, there's a lot of research on this basically showing that the, the subjective boost that people feel, that chronic caffeine consumers feel when they take caffeine, is actually not a real boost above their normal levels of energy and performance. It's actually what's called withdrawal reversal. So what's going on is that you have now made yourself dependent on caffeine in order just to function at what used to be your normal level of function, your normal level of energy and performance. So there is no objective boost. What's going on is you've, you've now basically created a situation where when that caffeine leaves your system, you have withdrawal symptoms. You have things like lower energy, lower cognitive performance, and so on. And now you take the caffeine to create a withdrawal reversal to get you back up to what used to be your normal. So this is not a good model of a way to increase your energy levels. It's not to rely on stimulants, which actually are lowering your baseline levels of energy. We wanna do the opposite of that. We wanna implement strategies in our life that increase our baseline levels of energy, not make us dependent on an external substance in order to function at what used to be our level of normal. Wow. Well. I'd love for you to go into that. And so would, with that wrap up, would you say it's probably ideal not to drink caffeine? It makes me uh, reminded of times when I heard like caffeine as a drug, you know, it was interesting because I never drank coffee until I was in my mid twenties and I can kind of relate to that and even, you know, not feeling good, but it kind of gets addictive. So it becomes a part of your lifestyle. So would that be your short answer if you can get rid of it or in this caffeine free coffee? Is that okay? Or do you just want to 
substitute with like a green tea or something? What would you substitute with? Yeah, it's a complex story. I wish it was a really easy answer. Um, and rest assured, I'm not just demonizing coffee or, or caffeine containing beverages because the reality is both with coffee and things like green tea or black tea or matcha, um, we have research clearly showing profound benefits in terms of um, lower rates of various diseases. These things can be neuroprotective. They can protect us against various kinds of cancers uh, and, and many other different diseases that um, have been lower rates of those diseases have been linked with consumption of coffee or, or teas or other beverages that contain caffeine. Um, so I wish it was a really simple story that's where I'm saying, hey, you know, coffee is bad and never drink coffee again. I'm not saying that. Um, caffeine in or coffee in, um, in small amounts, one cup a day, I would say maximum, um, if you're doing it every day, or using it more strategically when you actually need a boost. So using it in a way where you're not damaging your baseline levels of energy and cognitive and physical performance, but using it only when you really need a boost. So let's say you work out four days a week, you take it before your workout, as an example. Um, let's say you're in school, you're taking tests, or you've got a big um, you know, uh, a presentation to give at work and you really wanna be at your best, um, these are, there are strategic times where you can give yourself that extra boost and not use it chronically in a way that damages your baseline levels of energy. If you want to use it on a daily basis, then it's got to be in moderation. If you don't want those negative adaptations, if you don't want to become dependent on it in order just to function at what used to be your normal level of function. Got it. Okay. Well, that's, that's a good answer. And I feel like that's uh, a clear way to put it is that, that adaptation where you're just having it so much. So it's decreasing your overline uh, over, we call overarching baseline. So your baseline is just much lower than it used to be. So that's an important part. So now if we're going to build up to super energy and you're going to give us like the code of uh, how to build that. So over time, my energy is increasing. I would love to hear how the heck that I do that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so what I was explaining before, you know, caffeine is a little bit of a tangent. It's got its own unique mechanism of how it creates fatigue um, at the level of, of neurotransmitter adaptations in the brain. But more generally, um, going back to this model I was presenting before, we have these two main drivers, two main controllers of our energy levels. One is the extent of allostatic load, the uh, total body stress load that we're under at the lifestyle and environmental level. So we can modify those factors. We can modify um, what our nutrition looks like. We can modify our behaviors um, when it comes to our sleep hygiene habits, when it comes to how we're, um, how much psychological stress we're under and what habits we have to, to mitigate that psychological stress. Um, we have strategies to um, alter our gut health and alter our circadian rhythm and alter how much environmental toxicants we're, we're being exposed to. So um, that's, that's one big key layer of the story. And there, there's, lo there's lots of meat there that we can dive into. Um, the other aspect, and then I'll let you decide which, which path we go down. The other aspect, again, is what's going on with you at the cellular level, at the mitochondrial level. Are your cells filled with mitochondria that are strong and healthy and you got lots of them, or do you have weak, shriveled mitochondria and, and few of them? And that is largely a function of um, how much hormetic stress you are subjecting your body to. 
hormetic stress or hormesis is basically transient metabolic stressors of very specific types that stimulate your mitochondria to grow bigger and stronger and actually stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis, the creation of more mitochondria, of new mitochondria from scratch. And the extent to which that is integrated into your lifestyle determines the cellular, your, your basic, your state of cellular energy producing potential, how much mitochondria you have and whether they're big and strong or weak and fragile. So fundamentally, that, that, those are the things that we can modify. We can improve our, our environment and lifestyle, improve our nutrition and our stress and our exposure to environmental toxicants and our light exposure and sleep hygiene, circadian rhythm habits and things like that. And we can engage in specific habits that um, build up our mitochondria at the cellular level so we have a bigger engine that's capable of producing much more energy and is much less susceptible to being overwhelmed by the stressors and being, and, uh, being sent into defense mode where we are now suffering from fatigue as a result of mitochondrial shutdown. Well, well, yeah, I'd love to hear about some of those strategies. And I feel like even if you take one of these um, avenues, you'll experience some sort of upgrade. So even your circadian rhythm, you're supposed to, you know, go to sleep. They say, well, I don't know if I read this uh, or whatever. Um, every hour of sleep before midnight is supposed to be worth two hours of sleep. Um, right. So if you get to bed by 10, those two hours become four hours of rest for your body to recover and grow. So I don't know if that's true or not, but it makes sense that if, you know, we're, we're kind of going to going to sleep when the sun sets and we're rising when the sun rises, it's kind of like a natural way to exist. And I know that for myself, when I have been in these times of seclusion, um, and I was living that way, it felt more natural. I felt better. I slept better. I was more rested. I, I was very alert, um, you know, and so it, it seems more natural. They also talk about screen time at night, right? You shouldn't be on your screens past 10 PM. A lot of people are, are looking at the screens. At least you can get those blue blocker sunglasses. They help a little bit, but again, this is kind of an, an, an unnatural way of living, right? Way back in the past, we wouldn't have all these lights and screens and all these things to stay up till four or five in the morning. And so obviously it's going to throw your, your body's natural way of doing things that is probably programmed to do through thousands of years. And so you might not be at an optimal level. They talk about um, grounding, you know, getting out in nature and the power of nature. So um, any of these avenues I think are great. And I'd love to hear maybe some of the dietary ones. I hear a lot of different things for, from diets, you know, um, you know, potentially supplements if that's helpful, but maybe some things that we need to include or exclude. And, and you've touched on that a little bit of those toxicants, you know, are you having just processed foods? and nonsense and no exercise, obviously, that's going to increase your ex, uh, energy right there. But then how do we do what you said about building up these stressors so we create strong super mitochondria so that when I'm 80, I have all kinds of good energy? Mm -hmm. Okay, there, there was a lot there. Um, let's, let's go one, maybe one by one. Um, one thing I'll mention related to the, the sleep and, and rhythms that you're talking about is one of my favorite studies. It's this very primitive, very unusual type of study, but it's one of my favorites of all times. So there's something called chronotype. Um, and this is basically whether you're more of a night owl or a morning person. Um, a night owl being someone who goes to sleep very late or early in the morning and, and wakes up very late. 
uh, and a morning person being someone who does the opposite, goes to sleep early, wakes up early. Um, there was a study done, it was published in the journal Nature, which is one of the most prestigious scientific journals. And basically what they did is something very primitive. They essentially just rounded up a bunch of people who are um, self-proclaimed night owls, who they're absolutely convinced that their natural rhythm is to be a night owl. They, they have, they'll say, you know, I've always been a night owl. You know, I've just always gone to bed at, at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. or 1 a.m. or whatever and wakes, wake up at 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. That's just my natural rhythm. It's been this way since I was a kid. I've always been a night owl. And they took a bunch of people like this and they basically just sent them on a camping trip. Okay, so they, they put them out in nature, sleeping in a tent, no sources of artificial light, just firelight. And um, they had them stay there for about a week. And within a week, within, you know, these are people, again, who've been on this rhythm, a night owl rhythm for 10, 20, 30 years. And within seven days of being in that environment, these people all of a sudden started going to bed at 9.30, 10 p.m. and waking up without an alarm clock at 6 a.m., right? Which is a typical morning person rhythm. That's the, that's the chronotype of a morning person. That's the, the rhythm of a morning chronotype, I should say. Um, so what, what this tells us is that while there may be some genuine variation genetically that some people may be more in the direction of night owls, some people may be more in the direction of morning people genetically, there's some variation there. What it tells us is most of the variation that we see, most of the, the people who think they're night owls are not actually night owls. And that's actually just a product of modern society, too much artificial light at night, not enough natural light, sunlight during the daytime. And the result of that is disrupting our biological clocks and phase shifting it to a later rhythm. Now, why is this important? Well, we know that um, night owls tend to, and, and anybody who has disrupted circadian rhythm, which is really almost everybody in the modern world who's not taking some explicit action to optimize their circadian rhythm habits, they're suffering many different consequences from this um, that directly translate into their risk of many different diseases and their energy levels in a huge way. So let me give you one, a, a few different mechanisms of how this happens. So we have a biological clock in our brain, okay? This is called the central biological clock. It's primarily responsive to light inputs, but also to some extent nutrition, movement, and temperature inputs. Um, we also have peripheral clocks throughout our whole body and basically all the cells and organs of our body from our muscles to our bones, to our eyes, to our liver, intestines, um, gland, hormone producing glands, everything has their own clocks, their own little biological clocks. And those peripheral clocks are primarily responsive to nutritional inputs rather than light. The goal, if you wanna have a healthy circadian rhythm, and you should want to have a healthy circadian rhythm because your circadian rhythm massively impacts on neurotransmitters and hormones and the function of your mitochondria, all of which massively influence um, your quality of life in terms of your mood, your energy levels, your drive, your ability to feel joy, um, your motivation to, to do, do work and be productive, um, and so and your risk of many different diseases and of course your energy levels and of course 
your sleep, your sleep quality. Sleep and energy are really two sides of the same coin, and they are linked by the circadian rhythm, both the central clock and all these peripheral clocks in our body. The goal is to synchronize your central clock in the brain with all the peripheral clocks. Okay, so how do we do that? Well, actually, before I get there, let me just give you a few different mechanisms of how dysfunction in these in, in the circadian clocks of our body leads to fatigue and disease. Number one, it massively influences many different hormones. Okay, so um, growth hormone, cortisol, testosterone, thyroid hormone, and melatonin are all critically important hormones that are intimately tied to your circadian rhythm. So if you have a disrupted circadian rhythm, all of those hormones, which are influencing uh, growth and regeneration, resiliency with your stress response, energy levels, mood, motivation, libido, um, metabolism, how prone you are to gaining weight. Um, I also should have mentioned insulin as one of the hormones. Um, sleep, circadian rhythm and sleep disruption also massively increases insulin resistance. So you're creating an environment where you're hindering energy production, you're supporting fat gain, you're supporting higher levels of stress, poor metabolic health in general across the board through those hormonal mechanisms. Um, you're, also, you're also influencing neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin and GABA, which are impacting on your mood and motivation circuits very, very heavily um, in a negative way. And GABA is a relaxing neurotransmitter that helps you calm your brain and go to sleep at night. So when your circadian rhythm is disrupted and you're, you're modifying those neurotransmitters, you're hindering mood, you're hindering sleep, okay? In addition, um, we also cleanse our brain and we cleanse ourselves at the cellular level every night while we're sleeping. Um, our brain has what's called a glymphatic system that purges uh, toxins that accumulate in the brain. It, it's designed to cleanse them every night while you sleep. Well, if your circadian rhythm and sleep is disrupted, it does that less well. Similarly, at the cellular level and at the mitochondrial level, we have processes called autophagy and mitophagy that are cellular cleanup and regeneration processes that are really that are that are breaking down uh, dysfunctional, worn out uh, cellular parts and dysfunctional, worn out mitochondria and rebuilding new healthy ones. So if you're impairing circadian rhythm or disrupting circadian rhythm and sleep, you're impairing all of those cellular and mitochondrial regeneration processes. And the other thing I'll mention here is melatonin um, is most people know it as, oh yeah, that's a sleep supplement, or maybe they know it's a hormone produced in their body that's involved in sleep. Well, here's what people don't know. Uh, it's actually the most powerful and important mitochondrial antioxidant. So what we now know is that um, when you are under just standard room lighting in your home and you're being exposed to the, the, the light from you know, just the fluorescent or LED lights in your home, the light being emitted from your computer screens and cell phones, that is suppressing in a massive way the production of melatonin by 50 to 70%. Okay, this is an this is a compound that every night is designed. We're designed to create a huge surge of it that saturates our mitochondria, which helps them repair and helps protect them from damage. So, what happens if every night you are suppressing your levels of melatonin by fifty to seventy percent? 
you're suppressing your levels of this critically important compound for protecting your cellular energy generators. Well, they end up accumulating damage. And of course, that translates into fatigue. So these are some of the mechanisms by which circadian rhythm um, leads to fatigue and leads to many different diseases, especially cancer in particular, but it disrupted circadian rhythm and, and sleep have been, has been linked with dozens of different diseases. Okay. So, um, let me give you a couple strategies to optimize it. So at the light level, bright light early in the morning within the first half an hour of the day, and as much bright light throughout the day as possible to create a big differential between the light exposure that you're getting during daytime and nighttime. When the nighttime rolls around, the bare minimum is uh, to wear blue blocking glasses and start to eliminate your exposure to blue light photons. That's, prim that's the primary wavelength of light that affects the circadian clock in the brain. So you wear blue blocking glasses, block out that blue light at night, and that protects your melatonin. So that, that, that allows you to secrete the proper amount of melatonin each night just by wearing those blue blocker glasses. So you're directly modifying this critically important hormone for protecting your cellular energy generators as a result of doing that. So that's the central clock. Okay, just a couple strategies there. And then at the peripheral clocks that are primarily responsive to nutrition, this is something I talk a lot about in my new book, Eat for Energy, go into great depth on circadian rhythm. Um, one of the most important things is feeding and fasting windows. So your feeding window, your eating window is your time from your first bite of food to your last bite of food. We know from research by um, a, a circadian rhythm researcher named Sachin Panda, Sachitananda Panda, um, that 85% of Americans have, a, have an eating window between 13 to 16 hours. And the optimal, based on the research, is between six to 10 hours. And we know that just by implementing that one thing, not even, effect, not even changing how much you're eating or what kinds of foods you're eating, but just by changing when you're eating, into condensing it into a, somewhere between a six to 10 hour eating window each day has a massive influence on your health in so many ways. Uh, we know that it lowers uh, levels of inflammatory biomarkers, levels of inflammation, in other words, lowers oxidative stress, um, improves many different hormonal parameters, improves sleep, and improves energy levels just by doing that. So widespread uh, improvements in overall metabolic health and overall quality of life and markers that are associated with your risk of many different diseases. Um, one other thing I'll mention here, two other things I'll mention is you want to sync that window to the hours of daylight as much as possible. Okay. And the more you do that, the better. So rather than consuming a huge um, amount of your food, um, in the, in the evening. Okay. Which leads me to my next point, which is something called calorie stacking. We know from research where they've compared different groups that either consume, they consume equal calories, but one group consumes the majority of their food early in the day. And one group consumes the majority of the food later in the day. The group that consumes the majority of their calories earlier in the day, breakfast and lunch, as opposed to dinner, ends up losing a lot more weight and having overall better metabolic health and better energy levels. So that's, those are a few things that you can do to optimize both your central clock and your peripheral clocks, and then synchronize the two to get widespread beneficial effects, um, reducing your risk. If you just implement those things alone, you're going to reduce your risk of dozens of diseases 
and massively improve your sleep and your energy levels. Wow. Well, that's a whole bunch of stuff right there and a very scientific deep dive on the why, which I think is important for people to understand because for me, I when you go through that list, I know that I'm only doing some of them um, and then I can kind of rate myself on how well I'm doing, whether it's my circadian rhythms or, or when I eat, when you think about inter, intermittent fasting and a lot of people talking about that these days. Um, this has been really you know, helpful. Is there anything else that you feel like we should chat about as far as strategies go of, of things to like avoid that are really energy sucking or, or other things that people can do to try to build up their energy. Because I feel like it, like you said at the beginning, when you have increased energy, um, you're improving your mood. When you improve your mood, you improve possibility. You're more pleasant to be around. You're a better uh, father, friend, uh, coworker, whatever the case is. And, uh, you know, I feel like a lot of the troubles that people have in mental health or energy, and, and this also leads into physical well-being as well, can be linked back to some of these things. So there's energy is one thing, but it's also the side effects of, you know, how well you're going to do in um, daily life as far as, you know, if you want to do anything as far as like create a business or um, go beyond, you know, I'm kind of mumbling, I'm kind of mumbling my words here, trying to, trying to say succinctly that your health is directly related to your quality of life. You know, every time you get your health taken away and you're in the hospital, that's what you have to fix. Right. And so this also correlates to your energy level. If your energy level is super low, you know, your inspiration and passion to do something, to solve problems, to overcome challenges is going to be very minimal. So if I could have said that first, that would have been better. Um, but, <laughs> but eventually I got there. So I'd just be curious if there's any other really important factors that people should uh, consider when trying to boost their energy. Yeah, absolutely. There's a huge amount, um, you know, to give you an overview uh, in, in my book, my book is solely focused on nutrition, right? Just the nutritional aspects of modifying energy levels. And there's, uh, there's five core chapters to the book. Um, one is on circadian rhythm, which I just talked a bit about. One is on optimizing body composition in terms of fat loss and muscle gain. One is on optimizing blood sugar levels, um, which is a massive cause of, of, or massive contributor to fatigue and, and energy dysregulation for many, many people. Uh, another big factor is gut health, another huge cause of chronic fatigue for many people. And another factor is brain health, which is also a big factor. So those are the five core chapters. Then there's two more chapters, one on superfoods for energy. And then there's a whole chapter that's basically an encyclopedia. I mean, this one's really worth the price of admission by itself, um, that, it's a, basically a compilation of all the science on the best compounds for boosting energy levels, uh, supplements, natural supplements for boosting energy levels. Um, and this is not stimulants and caffeine. And I explained why you don't want to rely on those earlier. These are all compounds that are, that are actually going to create lasting, sustainable improvements, improvements in your energy levels rather than reducing your baseline energy levels. These are things that can build up your internal energy uh, in a lasting and sustainable way um, without making you reliant on the compound for um, increasing your energy levels. So that's, that's information you really can't find anywhere else. And I, I'd say just that chapter alone is definitely worth the price of the book. Um, so I'm happy to, if you want to talk about one more thing, I'm happy to talk about any of those things, whether supplements or superfoods or blood sugar um, optimization. 
Yeah, I'd love for you to share a little bit about those. Um, specifically, I guess, that, you know, supplements is a big topic. It seems like the book is going to address overall diet and what you should be, you know, taking in and what things you should take out. So maybe people have to go over there and um, that's not going to be a quick fix. But maybe, yeah, a little, you could touch a little bit on the diet stuff if, if you can and the supplements, because even that one alone is like, to me, is like this uh, very convoluted world you know i hear very uh differing opinions so i'd love to hear a few ideal supplements that i could take that would boost my energy for sure yeah absolutely okay so um let's talk about blood sugar so um one third of adults have hypoglycemia meaning that two to five hours after eating a meal they dip into low blood sugar levels and this is a major contributor to fatigue for for a huge chunk of people one out of three people um, in addition uh there's a whole bunch of people that experience something called idiopathic post postprandial syndrome which basically means uh symptoms after you eat that we don't know what's causing them, okay? Um, and basically, it mimics the symptoms of hypoglycemia, but those people don't actually have hypoglycemia. The best explanation for why this happens is basically the, um, the hormones that are involved in regulating blood sugar are, in those people, successful at keeping blood sugar within uh, um, a, success, uh, a, a, a normal range, but they require exaggerated concentrations to do so. And the result of those exaggerated concentrations of certain hormones, like adrenaline, for example, creates certain effects, jitters, anxiety, um, fatigue, and really mimicking a lot of the same symptoms of hypoglycemia. So that's another chunk of people beyond the one out of three. And then there's, um, 80, there's research showing that 80% of uh, adults in the United States uh, spend at, at least periods of the day, they spike occasionally into the pre-diabetic or diabetic ranges of blood sugar in terms of hyperglycemia, high blood sugar levels. So there is a widespread problem with both hypo and hyperglycemia, many people switching back and forth between the two, and both are toxic to mitochondria, both are major contributors to uh, poor energy levels. So a few things that can be done to fix this. Number one, optimize body composition. Um, that's more of a longer term strategy, but it's critically important because the number one cause of uh, hypoglycemia is actually insulin resistance, which is primarily caused by having excess body fat. So we really wanna get rid of the excess body fat. We wanna increase our muscle mass. Um, there's research showing that even with people with full-blown extreme insulin resistance, type two diabetes, that they've had for years, that it can actually be reversed. You can go from a full-blown type 2 diabetic dependent on medications to non-diabetic with no medications in a matter of weeks, believe it or not, and purely as a result of losing body fat. And the more body fat you lose, the better your insulin sensitivity gets and the more you can reverse insulin resistance, okay, and, and optimize your blood sugar level. So that's critically important. Talk a lot in depth in my book, Eat for Energy, on how to do that. Um, another one is, as a more quick fix, a short-term strategy to start to eliminate some of these symptoms, reduce or eliminate uh, processed and refined carbohydrates. It's pretty self-explanatory. Most people have heard of that, but it can absolutely make an immediate difference in helping to normalize your blood sugar levels. 
Um, implementing some of the circadian rhythm and time-restricted eating strategies I mentioned before massively increase insulin sensitivity and will greatly help in, um, in, in normalizing blood sugar levels and combating blood sugar dysregulation. Uh, another one is addressing your omega-6 to 3 ratio. Most people have way too high omega-6s, way too low omega-3s, so bringing that closer to somewhere between a 4 to 1 to 1 to 1 ratio. Most people are consuming lots of processed foods rich in vegetable oils, rich in these omega-6 uh, rich oils, and have accumulated a 20 to 1 or a 40 to 1 or a 60 to 1 ratio of omega-6s to 3s. And that is also a big contributor to, to insulin resistance and blood sugar dysregulation. And then here's a couple of cool ones that are sort of easy, um, quick fixes that make a huge difference. One is eating your vegetables, eating non-starchy vegetables at the beginning of your meal. So literally, not, we're not even talking about changing what you're eating, but just the order that you're eating the foods on your plate. By eating the non-starchy vegetables on your plate, so um, like green leafy vegetables, for example, or purple cabbage or what, asparagus or whatever it is, um, by eating those first in the meal, you can hugely impact on your blood sugar levels. And there's research, believe it or not, showing that just that one strategy alone was able to reduce uh, something called the hemoglobin A1C, which is a marker of insulin resistance, uh, from 8.3% down to 6.8% within a few months of just doing that one strategy, just eating vegetables first in the meal. Um, and that's almost outside of the cutoff of the diabetic range. So you, it's basically what I'm saying is just by implementing that one strategy, um, in diabetics, they almost made them non-diabetics just by doing that one thing. So that's a really cool one, really easy, low-hanging fruit. Another one along with that is eat your protein first in the meal as well, has similar effects to eating the non-starchy vegetables. And then a few other really easy things you can do, consume um, acetic acid, vinegar, um, before the meal. Uh, lowers blood sugar levels very significantly. So if you combine that with what I just said before, you can put that vinegar right on your green leafy vegetables, consume them both together, and now you've got a double whammy. You're amplifying that effect even further. And then there's other things you can do. Um, lemon juice has a similar effect. Um, berberin is a wonderful compound. And cinnamon, if you consume cinnamon, um, with your meals, it's absolutely huge in terms of helping to combat hyperglycemia and help to, helping to um, create insulin sensitivity in the body. So this is a handful of strategies that you can implement to immediately make a massive impact on one of the biggest contributors to uh, what's controlling our, our energy levels. Amazing. Well, I definitely appreciate all those tips. And like you said, there's some low hanging fruit there. And I always encourage people to, you know, have the full understanding. So if you enjoyed this show, I invite people to check out your book, because you're going to go deeper into these ideas and strategies. And when I listened to you, I could hear and remember other shows where they would, you know, say similar things, whether it was the gut health, or there's a lot of similarities in there, right? So all that all this energy creation is going to stem from ideal health. Right. And so we need ideal health that will give us ideal energy that will allow us to do whatever we want to do in our life. So um, I just appreciate you coming on the show and for your work and for writing the book. If people want to dive into your book or they want to learn more about you, where should they go and what should they do? 
Yeah, go grab the book on Amazon. Uh, you can get it. It's called Eat for Energy, How to Beat Fatigue and Supercharge Your Mitochondria for All-Day Energy. And then after you do that, uh, email me a receipt of your purchase at ari at theenergyblueprint.com, and I will hook you up with $300 worth of free courses as a thank you for buying the book. It's absolutely packed with information uh, to increase your energy levels. I mean, there's just, as I mentioned before, just the supplement chapter alone gives you you know, science that you won't find elsewhere on specific compounds that can increase your energy levels by 40-50% literally in the next 30 to 60 days. So, you know, if you if you care about the quality of life, energy is at the core of that. Who doesn't want 40-50-100% more energy by implementing a few simple strategies over the next month or two? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I appreciate your time and uh, thanks everybody for watching. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. All right. See you later. See you guys. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the absolutely amazing Ari Witten. I hope that you learned a lot and enjoyed this show. And if you did, please share it far and wide. Uh, whoever might be listening or enjoying a show like this because censorship is an issue, uh, consider leaving a review on iTunes if you want to support the show or go to mattbelair.com and become a member for exclusive content. You can do so uh, by donation or for free if you just email me. Happy to get you into the members area. And if you want to explore some coaching, some one-on-one -on -one work or some programs, just go to mattatzenathlete.com. There's a variety of ways to support from life purpose peak performance uh you know knowing and living and architecting your life purpose you know based on your value sets and so much more which include like overcoming your limiting beliefs getting crystal clear and all that kind of stuff that comes up along the way so if i can support you i'd love to just send an inquiry and happy to help and uh that's it let's come into a state of peace and coherence before we close this show wherever you are in the world just stop what you're doing take in a deep breath in through your nose hold that breath and let it out slowly, filling every cell, muscle, and fiber of your being with joy, peace, contentment, courage, faith, strength, and get ready to enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.